Amen. Let's pray. Let the, uh, the voices of the choir God echo in our hearts uh, in the coming uh, moments, minutes, hours. May we be people who are always directed toward you in praise, uh, seeking to bring you glory and honor. Uh, the majesty belongs to you and you alone. May uh, that reality be present and true for us, not just when we're in the sanctuary, not just on Sunday mornings, not just when we're hearing music, but throughout our lives. And as we uh, open your word now, uh, may we uh, be inclined toward you with praise and awe, uh, hungry to hear from you. Your words are truth, your words are life, your words are our hope. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are good and fertile soil to receive your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way stray or deviate from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. I have a lot of words on my paper this morning. Words matter. Our words matter. Our words matter. All of our words matter because they have power. There's power in our words. There's power in what we say. There's power in the ways that we say, the things that we say. There's power about when we say, what we say, to whom we say. Proverbs 18.21 reads, The tongue has the power of life and death. And this is true not just in the scriptures, but it's true for each and every one of us. Our words have power. In the book of James, he talks about uh, how uh, our words are like a little bridle or bit in a horse's mouth that can turn the, the direction of a uh, huge and powerful horse one way or another. He talks about how the little bitty rudder, that little bitty piece on a ship, has the ability all by itself to shift the direction of a massive ship and where it is going, what it's all about. The tongue has power for good and evil, James writes. Cynical words can drag people down. Sarcastic words can cut deeply. Judgmental words can alienate people. Critical words can permanently wound. On the playground as kids, we used to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And it just wasn't true. It was never true. And it's not true now, not for kids, not for grown-ups, not for any of us. We know that from experience. Words can hurt. Early in Colossians, a uh, chapter ago, earlier, uh, Paul talked to husbands about speaking kindly to their wives, to fathers, to parents, about speaking kindly to their children. John Eldridge, in a book that he wrote years ago called Wild at Heart, kind of about men, talked about the ways that men and boys have been wounded regularly by the harsh, mean words of their dads in particular. In Proverbs 12, 25, we read that an anxious heart weighs down a man, but kind words cheer him up. There is power in words. Words are not just words. Sigmund Freud, famous psychiatrist, discovered along the way in his work that symptoms of emotional distress could sometimes be relieved by talking, by words in certain ways to his patients, which surprised him and intrigued him. Years and years and years of high-level medical training and practice had taught Freud 
to think of people as merely biological and chemical entities. He had concluded that problems like anxiety, depression, and phobias must reflect some purely physical disorder treatable only through medical intervention. Only later and along the way did he come to recognize the clinical value of encouraging words. There's power in our words. Words are not just words. With this in mind, let's turn to Paul's words written from jail, his words to the Christians in Colossae, new young Christians, as he continues wrapping up his letter to them, reading from chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. This is the word of God. Listen closely. Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. And so in addition to himself and Timothy, Paul mentions eight other brothers in Christ who are with him at the time that he is writing. Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel, of course, and beyond Paul, we don't know for sure if any of the others that he mentions in the fourth chapter of Colossians who are with him were in prison themselves at that time in that place, but they were still with Paul. They were partnering with Paul. They were supporting Paul. They were providing for Paul. They were along with Paul. And the first of these fellow workers, as Paul sometimes calls them, uh, was a man named Tychicus. We can piece together from other mentions in the New Testament about Tychicus that he was most likely from Asia. And in this case, he has probably taken an offering, a financial offering from his church, from his home church, to the poor Christians at the mother church in Jerusalem. And now he is returning slowly, making his way back to his home city. And he swings by to hang out with Paul, to rub shoulders with Paul, to spend time with Paul who can't swing by to hang out with him and his church. And now Paul is sending him, Tychicus, along to provide a fuller update about Paul, more than Paul could write in a letter at that time. And then also, especially, Paul says, to encourage the believers in Colossae, to encourage them, which if we remember from first sermon way back on June 16th, This is really Paul's thrust in Colossians. Not to teach, not to correct, not to admonish, but uh, more than anything else, to encourage the Colossians. This was something to which Paul was as committed to be as he himself could be. Back in chapter two of his letter to the Colossians, Paul wrote, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. He continues to contend in jail. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, people he has never even met, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's goal, more than that, his life purpose has become, and it was for people that they might know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all reality, everything you need to know for life. 
And Paul longed to encourage the new Christians at Colossae personally. But being stuck in prison, all that Paul could then do was to write letters and send others on his own behalf. And of course, God has over the centuries then and to this day continued to encourage people through the letters that Paul wrote and to really change the world through him in that way. But God also used and has continued to use those people Paul sent as representatives, as envoys, emissaries, as messengers to encourage. And that is what Tychicus was. And that is why Paul sent Tychicus to Colossae. The Christians in Colossae were being pulled in all sorts of different directions by false teachers both inside and outside the church. The Christians in Colossae were certainly experiencing some level of persecution, as was simply commonplace and normative in the first century for these new people following this one that they called God, Jesus. They were certainly struggling at times, as even we do, uh, with doubts and uncertainties about their newfound faith. There wasn't a church building. There wasn't established Christianity. They were on the forefront, in the frontier of this new faith and this kingdom that's expanding in the world. And certainly they at times had doubts and uncertainties. And so they were ripe for being led astray, for falling away, for even running away, as some did. Never underestimate the potential influence of persecution and hardship and struggle and doubt and fear. But also never underestimate the power of words as the brilliant Freud discovered for himself. In the sovereign grace of God, we have been imbued with the power to lift people up, to carry people along, to sustain people, to inspire people, and to invigorate people by the grace of God. The Greek word translated here uh, as encourage means to comfort, to console, to reassure. And it also means to urge, to stimulate, to challenge. To encourage someone and to challenge someone with the word of God specifically in such a way that that person is motivated, uh, inspired, strengthened, lifted up, pointed in the right direction, pointed toward God, guided toward Jesus, brought back into the fold, Helping a person to become who, how, and what God plans for that person to be in all of that fullness. And encouragement is not an exclusive gift of some people that belongs to a few, but rather it is a practice. It is a practice to which all of us are called in one way or another. As Peter wrote in his first letter, uh, to speak words that God would speak, to speak the words of God This is to something that every one of us, and not just the strong, and not just the specifically gifted, are called. The author of the book of Hebrews wrote these words, let us hold, let all of us, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Paul wrote in his sort of parallel sister letter to Colossians to Ephesians these words, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building one another up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. 
those to whom one is speaking, those who are happen, happen to be around and listening. To that end, here are some things that we can do to build one another, one another up, to encourage one another, something to which we are all always called. First, encouragers remind people of God's presence, God's activity, and God's promises. Encouragers point people to God. The Colossians lived in this religiously pluralistic world of various gods and philosophies to which people all around them were looking. All of them false, of course. And that is why Paul spent so much time at the beginning of his letter to the Colossians talking specifically about Jesus pointing people to the one true God and the reality in whom they could find the one true God. The incarnation of God, the tangible, visible expression of God himself. The Son, he wrote in verse 15 of chapter 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Where do I go to find God? Where do I look for God? How do I find God? Look to Jesus. In Christ, God has come near. God is not far away from you. God is not unknowable. God is not an abstract, amorphous, holy, transcendent being. He came near to us in Jesus. He dwells within us daily, those who will receive him. He is near. He continues to reconcile, to redeem, to restore, to awaken, to arouse, to heal. We live in this sometimes lonely world out there where it's a lonely crowd, a busy crowd, but we live in a life that for many is meaningless apart from God not knowing God, not seeing God, not being aware of God. We live in a time of post-modernity, post-Christianity, a pluralistic world where all answers are up for grabs and the rug has been pulled out from under the historic church and God seems silent to many. But encouraging people, encouraging people have a gift from God and a calling from God to point people back to God, to call people's attention to God, to his power, to his presence, to his promises. Second, encouragers give people hope. You may or may not have seen this story a week or two ago in the news where this judge in Dallas, Texas, uh, leaves her throne, her seat behind the bench, and comes and greets personally a young woman, a police officer who had just been convicted, she was the defendant, had just been convicted and sentenced to 10 years in jail for a crime for which she was deeply remorseful and in some ways we could say it was accidental and tragic, but a crime nevertheless. Grief-stricken, having no idea where to go, what to do, what laid ahead, full of fear. The judge comes out from behind her bench, gives her a hug, says God will be with you in this. You will be okay. Gives the woman her Bible. Quotes scripture to her. And loves on her. Encouragers give people hope for the journey ahead. Encouragers li and encouragers lift people's spirits. 
I'm always inspired when I hear or read about how God uses our cancer support group and the people who are a part of that group. To help and to aid and to bless and encourage one another through their journeys with cancer. They meet, they talk, they listen, they pray. And God hears their prayers and often they are healed, they are freed of cancer, they win the battle. And we know that God hears and responds to our prayers and that God works through prayers, but we also know that God works simply through the words of one person to another, one journeyer to another, to in a way heal. All of the Christians in Colossae and in other towns and cities to which the word of God had gone and the knowledge of Jesus had spread and people had received in the first century experienced hardships of different sorts and hardships that you and I will never face because of their faith in Jesus. But receiving words from someone like the Apostle Paul would have greatly encouraged them and given them hope. Encouragers remind people of God's gifts and callings as well. Paul writes in verse 10, the next verse beyond what I read earlier, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. And why is that? It's because Mark bailed out earlier on another trip. Mark uh, didn't follow through. And so Paul dropped him. But Barnabas had faith in him. Barnabas saw his gifts. Barnabas understood Mark's calling as well. Who goes on to write the gospel of Mark, the first and earliest of the gospels. And Barnabas reigns him in. He says, I see in you a calling from God. I see in you faith. I understand your gifts. And he restores Mark. Encouragers remind people of their gifts from God and their callings. And encouragers build people up. They don't tear people down. Again, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. We live in a season as a culture in which tearing people down, denigrating people, making fun of people, calling people names, slandering people carelessly has become commonplace. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. Joyce Meyer wrote, instead of being critical of people in authority over you and in those below you, be happy that you're not responsible for everything those above you are responsible for. Do not look down on those below you. Instead of piling on complaints, thank them for what they do, who they are. Overwhelm them with encouragement and appreciation. I like that. Paul also mentions uh, in the next few verses in this passage a man named Demas. We find out later in Paul's, uh, the last letter that Paul writes, that Demas eventually abandons him. Paul doesn't say anything about Demas in Colossians other than naming him. And scholars think that Paul may have had a, an idea 
that Demas was on the edge, that Demas was going to drop off, that Demas was going to abandon him. But it's interesting, it's curious that Paul refuses to say anything negative about him. Paul has only encouraging, he doesn't always in all of his letters have only encouraging words, but in Colossians, he does. And encouragers celebrate with people. Paul later writes to the Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice. And doesn't that lift you up? When you've got something to rejoice, and you might rejoice in it, you want to be humble and not make a big deal about it, and someone comes along and wants to rejoice with you, wants to join you in your joy, and multiplies that joy and that celebration. Have you experienced that? How fun is a birthday party when you're alone blowing out the candles? (laughs) But when people are around singing happy birthday, doesn't that multiply that thing? Doesn't that make turning 60 or 70 or 80 just a whole lot better? I wouldn't know. That's true. I would not know. I'm just guessing. It may turn turning 30 a lot better. <laughs> Encouragers inspire people to persevere in faithfulness through difficult circumstances. We've all read stories about those missionaries who served for decades in hard places before they saw any fruit at all. We think of David living under the oppression of Saul. We think of people who run uh, long distance races, marathons, who uh, receive power by the cheering of those along the way. Uh, Two of my kids ran cross country for a number of years, loved going to those events, but who stands silently by as the runners as one's child passes like this? Who says, oh man, you're looking tired. You're looking weak. I don't know if you're going to make it. Looks like you're going to finish in the middle to the back of the pack on this one. Or do we cheer and praise and yell and say we love you and you're doing great and you're doing amazing. And doesn't that somehow empower runners? Doesn't that give them a boost in some strange God-ordained way? The author of the book of Hebrews talks about a cloud of witnesses, a cloud of fellow believers, martyrs even, who have gone before us, who are up there, out there, around us, in here, cheering, saying, you can do it. Keep going. Keep running. And encouragers instill courage in people. Encouragers instill, put courage into people who are afraid. uh, Some of you, I have done those ropes courses that for me are terrifying. Like, uh, sure, that cable looks strong, but sure, it's only 30 feet in the air. Sure, a thousand people have done this before. But aren't we encouraged when a little kid, a seven-year-old, goes before us and does that? Or someone says, you can do this, or I believe in you? Some of us are horrified at public speaking. And yet when someone says, I believe in you, I see that you can do this, go for it. There was a time in a season where I really didn't like flying. I remember returning from China uh, 13 years ago. And so the 747 is just being tossed around in the wind. The pilot comes on and says, uh, we really don't know what the weather's going to be like from here out as we fly back over China. The radars aren't working. We have no clue. We're flying blind. Hang on. The flight attendants are all strapped in. 
and they're digging their fingernails into their uh, hand rest. And I'm thinking, this is not good. This is not where I wanted to die. And the person with whom I was flying says, it's okay. It's going to be okay. And I'm thinking, part of me, logically in my head, this person knows nothing <laughs> about the Bernoulli effect, about the engineering of airplanes, about the weather, about meteorology. They know nothing. But I was also comforted by a calm person saying, it's going to be okay. We're going to make it through this. And you're not going to die in a plane crash. Everything's going to be fine. There were certainly some in Colossae who were afraid. And Paul gives them courage just by who he is and by what he says and by his letter and his love and his words and sending Tychicus. And then encouragers affirm the inherent value of every person made in the image of God. Again, something our world doesn't always do. The God who is love loves even those who seem unlovable to the world or seem to themselves to not be lovable, who feel unloved. Uh, a few years ago, I shared with you a story of uh, a kid named Teddy Stollard. So Teddy was a typical fifth grader. His clothes were always musty and wrinkled and his hair never combed. He, his face was expressionless. He had a glassy, unfocused stare. He seemed disinterested in school when his teacher, Mrs. Thompson, spoke to Teddy. He always answered with one-syllable grunts, yeah, nah, uh. Unattractive, unmotivated, and distant. He was just plain hard for her to like. Even though Miss Thompson said she loved all the children in her class just the same, down inside, that wasn't really the truth. And maybe some of us can relate to that. Whenever she marked Teddy's paper, she got a certain depraved pleasure out of putting X's next to wrong answers and putting F's at the top of the page. She should have known better, though, because she had reviewed Teddy's school records, which read like this. First grade. Teddy shows promise with his work and attitude, but he has a poor home situation. Second grade, Teddy could do better. Mother is seriously ill. He receives little help at home. Third grade, Teddy is a good boy, but too serious. He's a slow learner. His mother died last year. Fourth grade, Teddy's very slow, but fairly well behaved. His father doesn't seem interested. So Christmas came that year, and the boys and girls in Ms. Thompson's class brought her Christmas presents. They piled them on her desk and crowded around to watch her open them. Among the presents, there was one from Teddy. She was surprised he had brought her a gift, but he had gift after gift she opened, and after each one... The children oohed and awed. Then came Teddy's gift. It was wrapped in brown paper and was held together loosely with old masking tape. On the paper were written the simple words for Ms. Thompson from Teddy. When she opened Teddy's present, out fell an old rhinestone bracelet with half the stones missing and a half-used bottle of cheap perfume. 
the other boys and girls started to giggle and smirk over Daddy's gifts. But Miss Thompson, at least, had enough sense to silence them by immediately putting on the bracelet, putting on some of the perfume on her wrist, holding up her wrist to the other children to see and smell. And she said, how beautiful and what a lovely fragrance. And the children, taking their cue from their teacher, readily agreed them with their oohs and ahs. At the end of the day, when school was over and the other children had left, Teddy lingered behind. He slowly came over to the desk and said softly, Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mother. And her bracelet looks really good on you too. I'm glad you like my parents. When Teddy left, Miss Thompson got down on her knees and she asked God to forgive her. The next day when the children came to school, they were welcomed by a new teacher. You see, Miss Thompson had become a different person. She was no longer just a teacher. She had become an agent of God. She was now a person committed to loving her children and saying things to them that would live on after her. She was now a new person committed to saying things that would live on after her. She helped all the children, but especially the slow ones and especially Teddy. By the end of that school year, Teddy showed dramatic improvement. He had caught up with most of the students and was even ahead of some. So Ms. Thompson didn't hear from Teddy for a long time after that school year. Then one day she received a note that read, Dear Ms. Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know I will be graduating second in my high school class. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later came another note, Dear Ms. Thompson, they just told me I'll be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to know. The university has not been easy, but I liked it, loved Teddy Stollard. And then four more years later, dear Ms. Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stollard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact. Would you come and sit where my mother would have sat if she was still alive? You're the only family I have now since dad died last year. Love, Teddy Stollard. So Mrs. Thompson went to the wedding and sat where Teddy's mother would have sat. She deserved to sit there. She had done something for Teddy he would never forget. It was just words. The Holy, the, the Holy Spirit, whom the scriptures refer to as the great encourager, has empowered each of us, does empower each of us to simply speak words that affirm, that encourage, that give strength, that give hope, that empower, that relieve, that help to overcome fear. I've only ever known one person named Barnabas, a guy named Barnabas Sprinkle, nice guy. The name Barnabas, uh, bar, son, child, nabas in Hebrew, encouragement. His birth name was Joseph. But he was such an encouraging person, so devoted to encouraging others in the early church, that they changed his name to bar nabas, Barnabas, son of encouragement, not because his dad or his mother were encouraging, 
But that was a Hebrewism, a way of saying typified by encouragement, full of encouragement. I've only ever known one Barnabas. But I would love to see a church just filled with Barnabases. Not in name, but in life and in heart and in activity and in practice and in commitment. Ray Ortland on the cover of our bulletin says uh, this morning, I have never met anyone who is too encouraged. Never once. It's not going to happen. We don't have to worry about it. It's not a risk we need to worry about. May we be people who encourage one another, encourage people in our lives, encourage people in the world, encourage toward God, encourage toward faith, encourage in Jesus, encourage by the power of God's Spirit with our words that are really powerful. By the grace of God, let's pray. We thank you, God, for the people in our lives that you've given us, that you've gifted to us, who have encouraged us along the way as little children, as teenagers, as young adults in our older years. We thank you for those people and the gift that they've been to us from you, for the ways that they've lifted us, lifted us up when we've been alone or afraid or worried or distraught or suffering. Help us to be and to become those people as well. Grounded in Christ who is our hope. Who is the center of all things. Who is our strength. Who is our life. Who is our salvation. Bring these things about God. Be glorified. May your kingdom come. Amen.